In the year 1683, the Ottoman Turks from the east laid siege to the city of Vienna in the west. This was not the first time that they did this. The first time was about 150 years previous. But this time, they had really spent some time preparing. They had spent over a year building siege equipment and developing roads so that they could move that siege equipment into place. And during that time, unfortunately for them, the West also had the opportunity to prepare and to ally up. When the Turks and their assorted vassal and tributary states arrived and started laying siege, they found that they were not just combating the Habsburg monarchy, which was the leadership of the Austrians at the time, but they also faced the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and the Holy Roman Empire. And this siege, which was called the Battle of Vienna, is noted for several different reasons. It's noted for the massive scale of the battle. There were hundreds of thousands of soldiers on both sides. It's also notable for having included the largest cavalry charge ever in history. And then it's also considered to be the conclusion, the event that topped off a 300-year conflict between the Christian West and the Muslim East. If you were to ask the Western Christian nations here about the Turks, they would refer to these Ottomans as barbarians. And they would do so not in the same way that we would use the word. The word didn't mean everything that it means today. It didn't imply that these were unlettered ignoramuses, cavemen. It mostly just meant foreigner. And it meant in a lot of cases at the time, too, a foreigner who did not have the correct faith. But in this particular instance, the barbarians were at the gate in a very literal sense. In fact, this historical moment is one that some historians at least claim is the origin of the term barbarians at the gate. Though this is not the only event that is referred to by people in the know. There are a lot of different moments where quote-unquote barbarians have been at the gate in the sense of threatening and menacing established society. Consider warlords like Attila, uh, Attila the Hun, as he's very often known. Attila was an Asiatic warlord who had conquered great swaths of the Asian continent, and in doing so had allied with or conquered a great number of groups including the Ostrogoths and the Alans. And those are two groups that were among his war party when he decided to invade Eastern Rome, which is also known as the Byzantine Empire. And so in the year 443, he led this vast war party, including siege towers and battering rams and delightful new inventions of that nature. And he actually defeated the Byzantine general and his army. And so he defeated, in combat, the Eastern Roman army, and yet when he tried to breach Constantinople's walls, Constantinople being the capital of Eastern Rome, he failed. And so he found himself being another barbarian at the gate. It's interesting because Turk and Hun are words that have become expletives or insults in certain cases, to certain people. 
There are other words that have come to mean the same thing, other groups that were considered by some, considered by the more established, more heavily fortified winners of battles, usually, to be barbarians. Some groups that come to mind are Philistines, which were the enemy of the ancient Hebrews, Sodomites, which were a group that lived in the city of Sodom, and it's not absolutely historically certain how they were wiped out. The Vandals, they were a Germanic people who sacked Rome in the 5th century, and the Goths, who also invaded Rome. If you're seeing a pattern here, that's no mistake. Rome is very often the non-barbarian, to Western civilization at least, in these historical scenarios. But the modern meaning of barbarian at the gate, and it's a fairly commonly used phrase, is not a literal army of people with the wrong religion that are trying to invade your city. What it usually refers to is a new guard of some kind, a new group of people who are moving in on well-established, well-defended territory that the old guard has built. It's typically a group that was previously unknown, or at least unrecognized by that old guard, and who then perhaps developed and grew in secret, or at least quote-unquote undiscovered in the way that people who were discovered by colonialists were discovered. And that means that they came to be outside of, again, quote-unquote, acceptable society. But then after that development, and after being noticed, they demand to be recognized as legitimate, and in some cases even step in with the intention of taking over leadership, taking over the ground that this old guard has so long defended. And this ground in historical context can be actual geography, but in most cases it's more about the legitimacy of a certain industry or the respect of the critics within that industry. What I want to talk about today is barbarians at the gate. And to get there, I want to start in kind of an unusual place. Sports. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article that I want to start with and unspool a bit here this week is a little bit unusual, but bear with me. The article comes from the website SB Nation, and the title is Stephen Curry is so good that he's broken NBA 2K. And if you're not a sports fan, don't worry. This I'm not really a sports fan either, but this is something that is particularly interesting and very relevant to the topic barbarians at the gate. Because what we have here in Stephen Curry is a character who has entered the NBA, he's a basketball player, and he's completely unraveled the sport in some very important ways. And I say unraveled not because he's doing anything wrong, it's just that he's chosen to focus on some very particular skill sets, which has somewhat discombobulated the reward system that you typically find within the sport. Typically, things like assists, which is handing the ball off to a teammate and getting in really close and taking two-point shots and dunking and things of that nature, those are typically rewarded by the way the game is structured. But what Stephen Curry has done is he has mastered the art of the three-point shot, which is shooting from very far away, basically. 
And he's also apparently very good at stealing and what a non-sports person like me would call dribbling really well, which essentially means that he can dodge around people and steal the ball really easily. And so what he's done as a result of this, as a result of focusing on these somewhat asymmetrical skill sets, is he's created a bit of an arms race now where all of these other teams and all of these other individual players are trying hard not just to counter what he has brought to the game, but also to develop those skills themselves, because these are skills that have been largely ignored, or at least relegated to the back burner in favor of other skills that seemed more applicable to the game that they wanted to play. And so what's interesting to me about this article is that it is explaining another difficulty that's arising as a result of Stephen Curry and his unusual focus. The video game NBA 2K is a video game that is built upon the tenets that existed before Curry started changing everything. So it's a game that has rules that incentivize you to play the game in the way it was played before everything was disrupted in the way that it has been very recently. So trying to put a character like Stephen Curry into this game kind of breaks everything. It makes it almost too easy for the person that would play as him. And so there's a lot of people that are saying that you almost need to have a completely different game with a completely different set of rules. Otherwise, it's simply not even a competition anymore because the way that he plays has such an advantage over the way that everybody else is playing. I want to read a direct quote from the article, actually, that explains why I thought this was the perfect example to lead into this conversation about barbarians at the gate. And the quote is, Some are blaming Curry for the decline of youth basketball as kids who want to be like Steph are jacking up shots from deep and passing up layups, while his ludicrous accuracy from deep could force an overhaul of the NBA 2K series altogether. In short, the people who value the more traditional way of playing basketball are worried that this new character, who has completely different values, is destroying the game. And it's destroying the elements of the game that they value, at least some of those elements. Because now the skills that all the kids want to work on are very different skills from what these coaches or PE teachers or whatnot are capable of teaching or want to teach. And at the end, what they're saying is because he plays so differently, they might have to completely redo the rules on this video game that, until recently, they have felt accurately represents the game of basketball. This is not a conversation that's limited to sports or basketball or video games. This is a conversation that's being had in essentially every industry, probably every industry, at least a great number of industries and trades around the world. And I think that's always been the case. There have always been the new young punks that are coming in trying to usurp their elders. But it's happening much faster now, or at least in a different way, because we're more aware of it now, because of the communication tools that we have, but also because of what those allow. We are going through generational transitions much faster now, I think. Whereas before, you might have a group of people that is 30 years deep, so people born within the same 30-year span, that might have very, very similar ideas about things. Today, we're kind of running out of labels for these generations. Like, we're having trouble with the millennial generation because it's already segmented into several different age demographics, each with their own 
distinguishable propensities and values. And it didn't take long for that to happen. And so what we run into is more situations like this with an increasing regularity because we have a lot more usurpers walking in the door and much more frequently than before. I recently visited Edinburgh, and while there, I went to a Scotch whiskey tasting because, like sports, it was something that I didn't know much about, and I invited the opportunity to learn something about it. And Scotch whiskey, it turns out, is a very old-school, traditional, well-regulated thing. There are a great number of rules that you have to adhere to in order to be able to call something Scotch whiskey. The spelling, for example, you don't use an E, you just use a Y at the end of whiskey. The way that it's produced is very heavily regulated. It has to be processed, converted, fermented, distilled, all in Scotland using Scottish water. It has to be matured in casks on Scottish land for at least three years, and those casks can't be any larger than 700 liters. It has to be distilled to at least 94.8% alcoholic strength and maintain at least 40% of that strength, which is 80 proof in the U.S. at the end of the process. It can't have any added substances other than water and caramel coloring, which, fun fact, a lot of the Scotch whiskey that you get is not actually brownish, but they sell it that way because that's what we expect to see when we buy Scotch whiskey. In terms of labeling, there has to be a declaration of the malt or the grain that's used. You can only say single malt on the label when the whiskey is produced from a malt in a single distillery. And a single cask is the same thing. It's if the whiskey in the bottle all comes from the same cask. Blended, on the other hand, is a term that has to be used if the liquid in the bottle comes from different distilleries. Although all of those different blends, all of the liquids used in the blend, must adhere to the aforementioned standards. When you see an age on a bottle of Scotch whiskey, that age is the youngest whiskey used. So if you use a three-year whiskey and mix it with a 10-year whiskey, you have to say three years. You don't get to use the older year or find the average in between. There's other rules and regulations about the different regions in which the whiskey is produced and the type of casks that are used, which are typically from the United States. And the purpose of all of these standards is to maintain the integrity of a product that has a lot of traditional significance to the region. And some of it, no doubt, is economic control. It's an effort to ensure that this product continues to be produced in this region, which continues to bring jobs to the area and gives them a valuable export and things of that nature. But if you talk to the people who are really passionate about Scotch whiskey, part of maintaining that integrity is to ensure that you get a consistently high-quality product at the end. Because to do anything less would be kind of a slap in the face to their forefathers. Now, these are not the only standards that are being adhered to within the whiskey industry as a whole, but even within Scotch whiskey. There are a number of distilleries that have sub-brands, or in some cases there are whiskey startups, I guess you could say, that are operating in and around the area that adhere to a great number of these regulations and these requirements, but not all of them. They are experimenting with different types of grain that they use to eventually distill and turn into the whiskey. 
They're experimenting with different types of barrels, which apparently draws in different types of flavor, in the same way that wine takes flavor from the ground that it's grown in. Whiskey takes flavor from the barrels that it's aged in. And so if you make whiskey in a barrel that originally had port in it, that will be potentially a very different flavor than if you use barrels that once contained rosé. You're seeing some immense renegades using different types of water, or using different types of dilution, or using different machines, or other means of actually doing the distilling. The further you get from the traditional means of producing Scotch whiskey, the more likely it is that the traditional players in this field, which are the dominant players, kind of look down their noses at you. Even if they maybe in a way think that what you're doing is interesting, chances are they also see you as a bit of a renegade that needs to be reined in. Somebody who is playing fast and loose with the good name of Scotch whiskey. Some people within the whiskey field, of course, including the instructor who was conducting the tasting that I attended, find this experimentation to be very valuable, and they think that it's remarkable and interesting. And they're realistic about it, that perhaps 80% of what's being done is inferior to what's been produced before. But there's going to be 20%, if you're lucky, of something that's truly remarkable in a good way, something that adds something to the industry. And his hope, from what he told me, is that some of these new findings and these experimentations will be added to the tradition so that the field of Scotch whiskey will not stagnate and grow static and boring and instead will continue to evolve. There are other people within the industry, he told me, that do not want that. They want to continue to produce it exactly the same way that their fathers and their fathers and their fathers produced it. Because to do otherwise would be to impugn upon the integrity of what they're trying to do. Two very different ideas and seemingly incompatible ideas and that conflict that emerges as a result of the one group wanting to change things and the other group wanting to keep things the same is the issue that we see across all these many industries right now. Another field where this is incredibly almost painfully obvious, is in the field of sushi. Now, anybody who is familiar with sushi, even in passing, knows that there is a great deal of tradition that goes into it, and that is maintained by the practitioners of sushi creation, the chefs behind it. The preparation of the vinegared rice, for example, is something that is integral to everything that is made, and it's something that most sushi chefs in training spend years just learning to produce correctly. They spend years only producing the rice. And they do it and do it and do it until they get it right up to the standards of sushi rice tradition. And this tradition expands to the type of fish that's used, the way that it's cut, the way the preparation tools are used, the type of knives, the placement of everything, both on the cutting board and on the table, is something that tends to be held in high traditional regard. And yet, when you think of sushi, most of us in the Western world, at least, who didn't grow up in Japan, have kind of a flawed idea about what it is. There's a lot of things that we do that we consider to be traditional that are actually not. They tend to be things that are maybe promoted as if they're traditional, because that's something that helps you feel like you're participating in something a little bit old school. 
But in reality, a lot of our quote-unquote traditions are new marketing gimmicks, more or less. And a lot of these marketing gimmicks, these things that we in the West consider to be integral to the sushi-eating process, are actually forbidden in Japan. They are avoided strictly because they go against the grain of actual Japanese sushi-making tradition. If you have a California roll, or if you use cucumber or avocado in your sushi, that is not in accordance with Japanese tradition. If you have a norimaki or uramaki roll, if you have a tempura roll, that is against Japanese tradition. Now, if you have salmon in your sushi, or if you have a salmon nigiri, this is a rare instance where the West has innovated something in terms of how we serve sushi, which has then been appropriated by Japanese culture and adopted into their tradition. And it only happened because a Norwegian advertising guy basically was tasked with trying to increase the exports of salmon from Norway. And so he invented this new sushi roll, which included tamago, which is an omelet, imitation crab, cucumber, shiso leaf, nori, salmon, and a spritz of lemon and mayonnaise. And in doing so, he created a vast surge in the market for sushi in Norway. And this became such a thing that people took it back to Japan, and the chefs there said, okay, yeah, this is actually a, a good idea. I think we could do this too. Other aspects of the sushi industry, though, have not been so plastic. They have not been so accepting of the evolutions in their field that have taken place elsewhere. The etiquette, for example, of eating sushi is something that pretty much everywhere that I've been outside of Japan does wrong. It's typically not polite to add wasabi, for example, because that is an implication that the chef did not know how much to add. So it's kind of a slap in the face to the person who prepared this roll or whatever else you're eating. And we also tend to use soy sauce very incorrectly, typically, when we're eating sushi. Typically, it's only polite to dip the top part of the sushi in soy sauce. Because adding it to the rice implies that the rice was produced incorrectly, which is a grave insult. A piece of sushi that has its own sauce on top, like something that includes eel and eel sauce, for example, should not be dipped in soy sauce at all. Similarly, sashimi is almost always eaten with chopsticks, but nigiri should always be eaten with one's hands, even in a very formal setting. These are all things that according to the traditional dogma, are very important. They are vital to the experience of eating this specific type of food, this very traditional type of food. But it's also something that very clearly is out of the hands at this point of the most ardent practitioners and traditionalists. It's something that has evolved to the point where most people outside of Japan would have no idea how to actually act when consuming it in the place where it was born. And that says something. It says something about the way that these things evolve. And it also says a great deal about how those people behind the walls must feel. Because can you imagine learning a very specific way to do something and spending your entire life doing it that way? And considering that to be the correct way to do it, because everyone who taught you also considered that to be the only correct way to do it, only to find that the vast majority of people in the world outside of your culture have a very different idea about it. And they have that idea 
because of some renegades who have taken aspects of this thing that you hold so dear and then warped it beyond recognition. This is something I've been watching happening in my own field as well. I am professionally an author. I write books for a living. And the field of publishing has been in massive disarray over the last decade or so. And again, this is a field that has been evolving slowly but surely over thousands of years. But it's also a situation, like so many other fields, where that change, that evolution, has been happening much faster in recent decades because of the evolution in technology and the new connections that we have and the cross-pollination with other fields and, frankly, the new players in the field as well. When a behemoth like Amazon comes into publishing and disrupts so much, or a company like Google gets involved and comes into direct conflict with the Authors Guild, you find that the concept of the correct way to publish, to write books and distribute them, becomes a little less certain than it was before. Traditionally, you would have an author who would write a manuscript, and then a publisher, a big company, would come in and take that manuscript and edit it, and then they would print it out on paper and bind that paper into a finished product called a book, and they'd design it, and they would market it, and they would distribute it to their marketing channels, these relationships that they would have with bookstores and other distributors. The publisher would then take a great deal of that money, and then they would pay some portion of that back to the author after that author has earned back for them the advance that they were paid. And that was that. That is how the publishing industry worked. If you were lucky as an author, you were chosen as one of millions of people to be one of the few books that they published each year. And then you could kind of make your living off of that. And that is the romantic, traditional idea of becoming an author, that you write a book and then hand it off to somebody else and your work is more or less done. Well, one of the major changes that has occurred in the industry as a result of a lot of other changes is that this concept of what an author is isn't so relevant anymore. Most of the authors who I know who make their living off of writing books, myself included, are not people who expect to write a book and then they're done. They expect to have to do several rounds of editing and to do a whole lot of marketing and promotion, probably build their reputation and their audience themselves using social media and other tools, to go on speaking tours, it's quite likely that they signed a multi-book contract as well, so they've got another deadline that is on the horizon as soon as they finish one book. That is, if they decided to sign a contract at all, which is anything but certain because of all the new tools and business models that are available. And so that routine, that business model, has changed dramatically because of the emergence of self-publishing tools and the emergence of competition from the rest of the world. The barrier to entry for authors has lowered, but so has the barrier to entry for publishers and distributors. And then there's the emergence of other technologies like e-ink and smartphones. So now not only are publishers competing with each other, they're also competing with technology companies, hardware companies, every other type of media out there, including video games and movies and TV. Each of these variables emerging is like a different tribe emerging over the hills outside a well-gated city. These barbarians at the gate are an existential threat 
to a lot of the traditional players within publishing. And yet, if you ask many different people involved in publishing, different editors and authors and publishers themselves, they'll tell you that there's never been a better time to publish. And the reason for this is that, along with existential threat, there also comes a great deal of opportunity. There's the opportunity to deal with these barbarians outside your walls, to learn from them, to teach them, to have something to offer to a brand new market. There's an incredible amount of opportunity for cross-pollination and to develop something new. Because when you sit behind walls, you tend to gather dust. You tend to stagnate. Your ideas, though well-preserved, also don't tend to go anywhere and so become quite predictable. Perhaps they're predictable in a good sense, that you know you can expect the same good stuff day after day after day, and you feel quite secure because there's not that threat that you might accidentally produce something incorrectly. But there's also very little excitement and very little chance of staying competitive outside of the walls that you've built. Unfortunately, that's an opportunity that tends to be overlooked, at least by a great number of people in the old guard, whatever that happens to be and whatever industry we happen to be talking about. The old guard tends to be experienced with one way of doing things, and they've already grown and they have worked very hard, they've overcome great hurdles and great obstacles, and they don't feel that they should have to change anymore because they've come to a point where they have earned respect. And if new standards of success come into play, then they might no longer have the position that they have. They might no longer be at up top, or at the very least, they'll have to learn new things. And they've already done that. There's no reason that they should have to do that again. That would eliminate their feeling of superiority in a certain sense, but also security, more importantly, I think. And that's where that sense of conservatism within the old guard tends to come from. Things are good, why change it? On the flip side, the barbarians at the gate haven't really learned as many lessons yet, not as many as the old guard have. And as such, they tend to make a lot of mistakes that are very obvious to those people behind the walls, or brand new mistakes that perhaps the old guard could have recognized and avoided. And so as a result, these new potentially very skilled, very talented, very innovative people seem kind of like idiotic puppies wandering around, nosing into things that they shouldn't be nosing into. And what tends to define them then in the eyes of the people who have built these very stable, very predictable foundations and results is that they can't seem to get their shit together. And this is something that happens over and over and over again. Every group of barbarians eventually conquers and builds their own walls. One day, once they've become comfortable old dogs, they will be faced with their own existential crisis in the form of these puppy-like barbarians at their gates. Becoming the king of the hill just means that you have begun the waiting period to be usurped. It means that you a former Attila are waiting for the new Attila, or the new Ottomans, or some new young punk sushi chef or scotch whiskey distiller to unseat you. Recognizing this, that this is a cycle, this is not a new thing, and recognizing that it tends to work out okay in the end, 
means that we can perhaps become part of the barbarian horde when we see them coming up over the hill. We can create relationships with them. We can become kind of a bridge generation in a way, teaching the things that we know and learning from them in exchange, creating a beneficial relationship. Not ceding the castle to them, perhaps, but welcoming them in if they want to join you and benefit from what you've built so that you then might benefit from their mobility, from the new questions that they're asking and the new technologies that they've discovered and brought your way. Unfortunately, doing this requires a great deal of humility, and from both parties it requires humility. It requires that the new guard that are stumbling in have the humility to recognize that they don't know everything, which is a very difficult thing for somebody to do, particularly when they know just enough to try some things and get into trouble, but not enough yet that they have scaled too many horizons, only to find three new horizons waiting for them. That is to say, they don't know enough yet to know how much they don't know. But it's also quite difficult for the people who have been through it all before, because they have achieved a great deal of respect over the years, and well-earned respect. And it's difficult when you have become the master, when you've become the teacher, to regain a student mentality, to retain a malleability to your mind and your idea of how the world works so that you can continue to add to it after all those years. And so that type of humility on both sides is unfortunately incredibly rare. And it's unfortunate because having both of these things is incredibly necessary if society and, in a more specific sense, the industry or field that we happen to be talking about is to thrive. We need well-tested hard-set traditions and standards if we're going to expect to have consistently high-quality whatever, sushi, whiskey, whatever it happens to be. But we also need a degree of flamboyant overreach and potentially explosive experiments. Otherwise, those secure walls that we have built will slowly but surely crumble into disrepair. We need an element that will help us stay safe and secure and predictable to a certain degree which will help us preserve all of that hard-won knowledge that we've learned and all of the wonderful things that we've developed over the years. But we also need the flip of that to slowly but surely, and sometimes, yes, painfully, expand upon that knowledge, to add to it, to give us something that years from now will still be worth guarding and preserving. To rely completely on just one or the other would be be to either stagnate or to become unnecessarily risk-prone. To embrace both, however, as painful as that can be, regardless of which side you happen to be on, is to enjoy the best of both worlds, ideally, at least. We are not encouraged to see the world this way, though, which is why most of the storylines that you'll see in the news or or even in pop culture and in the different storylines that we see in fiction and otherwise tends to promote the battle of old versus new, of tradition versus the rule breakers, of Rome versus the barbarians. But it could be argued that empires more often collapse because of stagnation and irrelevancy rather than from invasion, and that the former of stagnating and slowly but surely crumbling actually makes the latter invasion a lot more likely. It weakens the structure upon which you're built. 
slowly but surely integrating with other cultures, other people with other ideas, however, tends to keep a nation or a walled city or a company or an industry strong, though. It keeps them growing. It keeps them evolving. It's interesting, as almost a side note, that we very often want our kids or the next generation in our field or whatever to have it better than us. So we work so hard to ensure that they have better education, that they're healthier, that they have more tools, that they have more and better of everything than we do. But then when they grow up and start to have ideas, we tell them to back off. We say, no, that's not how we do things. We criticize them for not having the same experiences that we had and for not coming to the same conclusions that we came to. We don't take their ideas seriously because they come from a different place than us. They come from a different standpoint from us. We, in a way, invest in a better future and then become upset when that future is something different than the past and the present. Now, that's not to say that the ideas coming from youth or from whatever youth happens to be in what we're talking about, people who are coming from outside the field, perhaps, not all of their ideas are going to be great and they're not all going to make sense. But what does make sense, I would argue at least, is to take those ideas as seriously as we can manage. Because I think it's actually a great strength to be that humble, to recognize that we've done great things, but that we have a lot to learn from people who are both older than us, but also younger than us, whether we mean in literal age or in terms of professional or otherwise development. In doing so, we kind of become the bridges between generations. We are the ones that allow everyone else, ourselves included, to benefit from the wisdom of experience, but also the potentially brilliant new ideas that come from these barbarians who have access to things that we never had access to, and that we, in a lot of cases and a lot of ways, gave them access to. Another way of saying all that is that those who listen and learn as much as they speak and teach tend to stay relevant a lot longer, and they tend to have more impact on those under their tutelage, because what could be more empowering to somebody that you're mentoring than feeling like you have something to teach those who have taught you so much, to feeling like you have some degree of respect and that you have some responsibility within this relationship. Again, that type of malleability is uncommon, but if you look around, if you look at the people who are staying relevant and influential, even into their later years, again, whether we're talking about actual age years that they've been alive or years that they've been practicing a particular trade, they tend to be the people who are aware of what's happening. Whether or not they were the cause of some new movement, they are willing to adopt it and appreciate it and work within it and learn new skills along the way. They continue to grow and warp and change shape rather than solidifying and risking becoming brittle over time. It could also be argued that a barbarian horde must someday establish itself or eventually burn out. It's often forgotten that one of the most notorious hordes 
that of Genghis Khan, the so-called Golden Horde, eventually became the Mongol Empire, which was an expansive, evolved empire, similar in many respects to other well-known empires like the Han Chinese and, yeah, even Rome. And so it's not just the old guard who have to be flexible in this regard. It's also the people who are riding around on tiny war ponies, pillaging and raiding, unwilling to commit to more than setting up tents that perhaps might someday need to build firmer, deeper-rooted foundations if they intend to build something of value that is long-lasting and do not want to depend on the infrastructure established by other wall-building civilizations to propagate their ideas through the ages. Remembering all of this adds valuable context, I think, to all of these old versus new stories. And if you pay attention, you'll see them everywhere. News publications love the idea of old versus new, because there's a great deal of conflict baked into these stories, and so they don't even have to try to create outrage. No matter what, the person reading it will side with one side or the other. And so they've created a black knight, white knight scenario, where half of the audience is cheering for one, the other half is cheering for the other, but either way, you get people incensed enough to click around and share. A lot of these arguments are not really arguments. They're not really conflicts. At least they don't have to be. Rather than feeling threatened by the barbarians at the gate, rather than looking at Stephen Curry and seeing an existential threat to the sport, instead what we should do is look at what he's doing and say, okay, what can we learn from this? How does this change the game? And how is that a positive thing? How does this add new flavor, new spice to what we're doing? What might all of us learn from this guy who has come in and completely upset what we've been doing for so long? This approach may not, quote-unquote, save the game of basketball, at least not in its current iteration, but it very well could help the game stay alive and stay relevant for a whole lot longer than it would otherwise. Not to mention potentially birthing an entire new series of video games. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, if you're enjoying this show, you can help this upstart young barbarian at the gate achieve walled city success by leaving a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also support the show monetarily by contributing a dollar or more if you like, but a dollar would be wonderful. You can do this at letsknowthings.com. You'll find a selection of links there that will help you do it through PayPal or Venmo or whatnot. You can also help support my work by buying one of my books. You can find the entire list over at colin.io. You can find the show notes for this episode and every episode at letsknowthings.com. Just go to the main page and then click on the episode in question. If you'd like to find me elsewhere and say hello or just keep up with what I'm reading and what I'm up to, you can find me pretty much everywhere at Colin is my name on Snapchat, Twitter, Instagram, etc. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. I have a YouTube show at considerthis.io. 
And if you'd like to comment on this episode or just say howdy, you can do so at the Let's Know Things Facebook page, which is at facebook.com slash Let's Know Things. There is a Let's Know Things newsletter, which if you enjoy this show, you will probably also enjoy. It is sent out every Monday, it is completely free, and it contains a selection of links to interesting things. You can sign up for that at letsknowthings.com. That's it for this episode. I appreciate you tuning in and geeking out with me, and I will talk to you again next week.